This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. As you may know, Comcast is trying to buy Time Warner Cable. If that happens, they will control what's on TV in 30% of the homes in America. They'll get bigger, and your chance of getting the Blaze will get smaller. Let your voice be heard. Visit GetTheBlaze.com right now. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. This is Kane and Cup. We're glad to be back with you again this weekend. We got a fun show, a big show for you this uh, this Saturday morning. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about Tony Stewart. We're going to talk about the collision of sports, often violent sports, and crime. When when does sports become criminal? And we're going to talk to NASCAR driver Michael Waltrip specifically about the Tony Stewart incident a week ago uh, when he ran over Kevin Ward Jr resulting in Kevin Ward's death. Uh, that's a little later in the show. We're also going to talk to Reince Priebus. Yeah, about all things all things politics. There's lots going on. It's I mean, it's a crazy news month for an August, which is usually like a slow news month. There's so much going on. Uh, so we're going to bring Reince Priebus in to talk about GOP politics, what's going on with, with uh, the president, what's going on with the party. So we've got a big show lot, yeah. and lots lots of other things. Chairman of the RNC will join us in the 11 o'clock hour. Um, by the way, that's why President Obama had to return from his vacation. Right. Just too much news. Too much news. Gosh darn it. Don't you hate when that happens? Let's do that. Let's start with some of the latest news because, uh, S.E., as you were pointing out to me just a moment ago, after a day of peace in Ferguson, Missouri, things seem to have changed. Yeah. I, you know, if you were watching the news yesterday, it seemed as if bringing in a new um, a new cop to helm the situation in Ferguson, Ron Johnson, was pretty much a salve for a lot of the things that were going on in Ferguson. He took to the streets. We saw pictures of of local Ferguson residents hugging him. Uh, he talked to protesters. He talked to um, families there. And because he was from Ferguson... Uh, we were told by the governor of the state, Jay Nixon, and the mayor of St. Louis, that um, this was going to result in turning a tide. And indeed it did. For a, for a night, it seemed as if things in Ferguson had quieted down. Uh, last night, however, everything changed again. And there were protests and looting in the street. And I, and I don't mean to conflate those, but they are related. Protesters actually... Ended up trying to protect some of the stores. Protect right? some of the stores from looters, um, and actually, the police feel as though their hands are tied, and they stood by and watched as at least three stores were looted and destroyed. Molotov cocktails were thrown on top of roofs. Firefighters had to put them out, but police made no efforts, uh, at least according to reports, to to stop the looting. So and, and in fact, bizarrely, there was also looting and protests in um, Oakland, California, hmm. related to the Michael Brown case. So um, bringing bringing this cop in was not apparently the salve to fix all of this. And others are suggesting that releasing not only the name of the cop, which people had wanted for some time, but this video, the video stills of the victim, Michael Brown, uh, holding up a convenience store at the same time angered people again 
Yeah, this is the day after we learn new information. Um, as we continually learn in these stories, story after story, year after year, our understanding is incomplete. Yesterday, not only did we learn that peace had not arrived in Ferguson, we learned that it is possible Michael Brown, the teenage victim in this shooting, was a suspect in a robbery immediately prior to the incident with the Ferguson police officer, which we also learned yesterday is 28-year-old Darren Wilson. These two pieces of information um, arrived on the public and the news media's doorstep and immediately had the potential to change our incomplete understanding of the story. And that's what I wanted to talk about with you this morning is it's it, we learned the lesson over and over. And see, I told you I sat I have sat on news sets um, through stories like this and the parallels to the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman uh, story are are inescapable. You learn in the immediate aftermath of an incident portions of a story. Certainly, to any casual observer, you can see incomplete portions of a story. And I have seen the media, I've seen it firsthand, and I've seen it as an audience member, run, run to conclusions. Now, sometimes those conclusions, SE, aren't necessarily overt. They're not, this is what happened. They're tonal. They're emotional. That's the new trend in the media, to emote to the story. That's how you resonate with an audience. That's what there's a thinking, an underlying subtext inside of the media circles that emote um, to the audience. And what you do is you create conclusions based upon partial information. We, you know, the media was basically filling in the gaps on the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case where there was a minute and a half, literal minute and a half gap in a 911 call and when officers arrived. We'll never know. To this day, we do not know what happened between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. But if you watched CNN, MSNBC, NBC, that gap didn't exist for you. You filled it with your assumptions, assumptions provided to you largely, I think, through media reports. And something similar happened here. Mike Brown was unarmed. Mike Brown was executed. He had his hands up. He was walking away saying, don't shoot, all of which could be true. We just don't know. And when you find out information like he was a potential robbery suspect, understandings change. New information comes to light. Yeah, and not only were they filling in those um, sort of technical aspects of the story. He was unarmed. He was executed. But it was very quickly, uh, a narrative was very quickly created. And so, therefore, this is a problem of race relations in Ferguson. I mean, quickly, like five minutes. Um, Probably, I'm guessing, people were making those suggestions before they knew the race of the police officer, uh, before they knew the racial breakdown of the town. This was the concluding storyline. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of reasons why people in our business try to do that. You, you said they, they, they create a conclusion. And, and that's true. But the desire is to lead an audience to a conclusion. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one thing I know is true of cable news today, if you are not leading your audience through a narrative story and you're leaving them simply to make up their own minds about something, you, you, you are afraid you will lose that audience. There is a fear in cable news that unless you create the storyline for them, people will tune out. 
a storyline that includes heroes and villains, good guys right. and bad guys. Yeah, it's it's Hollywood. It's ho- it's news by Hollywood. And you cannot just tell the facts and have a successful high-rated show on cable news. That's the fear. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you could and people would watch because they want to make up their own minds or really actually people don't want to make up their own minds. They want to be led in a certain direction. But that's all you see anymore. Well, let's do this. Um, that's one potential reason. I want to offer you a few more. Let's open this up to the audience. I'm going to get, provide for you a multiple choice, in essence, of why this happens in the media. Um, 888-900-3393. Give us a call. Give SE. And myself a call on the Blaze Radio Network and let us know what you think is happening with the media. And I want to distinguish something. We're not talking about the Al Sharptons and Jesse Jacksons of the world. We know very clearly why they run to conclusions. Um, they have a self-serving interest, a justifying principle in their agenda. own existence yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, to, uh, to prove. Yeah. But the media, the seemingly objective or at least uh, held out objective media. Why do they do it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's everyone from Andrea Mitchell on, on MSNBC to Ronan Farrow. Right. Um, creating these links in stories that may or may not exist yeah, before Andrea, we know. Andrea Mitchell tweeted earlier this week, um, Washington Post demanding why Wes Lowry, Wesley Lowry, uh, who is a Washington Post reporter, taken in, prevented from taking video by Ferguson Police Department, detained for reporting while black while also ronan farrow on his television show said are black americans as you put it under siege to which jonathan capehart said yes yes and so that's one of our potential reasons as well you've given one so let's go through I think but, but listen let me just say to andrea mitchell and to ronan farrow putting a question mark on the end of something doesn't make it okay <laughs> does not excuse the insinuation and the implication you are a reporter at least andrea mitchell was um Putting a question mark on something does nothing to soften your implication. If that's where you want the story to go, well, that's where you're taking it, whether the evidence bears that out or not. And she had absolutely no way of knowing if that reporter was detained for being black. Yet she insinuates that in a tweet and puts a question mark, which she thinks which she thinks probably absolves her of of leading this story. It doesn't. So we've got um, one you have forwarded. That is, we'll say, multiple choice answer number uh, A, which is that the media needs a narrative. They need a Hollywood storyline. They need good guys and bad guys, villains and and heroes. Exactly. That's one. Um, You know, I would offer you this one. There is a line in the movie Inherit the Wind where uh, a character in that movie says, this is a newspaper. The job of a newspaper is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. No. (laughs) <laughs> wrong false but i'm telling you that is a mindset within the mm. media that they believe that is their purpose their purpose is not to seek the truth it's not to be the public skeptic it's not to continually ask questions it is instead to champion the little guy and challenge the big guy to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable i think that is one of the reasons they do this continuously. Well, let's call that uh, option B. Let's call that activism journalism. And and I think that's absolutely a factor in this. I think, you know, more and more you are seeing activists being put into very sort of vague, nebulous roles. Is Rachel Maddow a journalist or an activist? Is Chris Hayes a journalist or an activist? Chris Hayes will tell you he started as an activist. Um, and his journalism was informed on the streets of Chicago, inner city Chicago, by his activism. Mm-hmm. 
I think he would purport to be a journalist. Well, you bring up an interesting next one. I mean, are you suggesting so? I think you can be both these days. Is politics also part of this? Is politics one of the? Well, so I think that's se- I think that's separate. I think activism. You're right. There are some journalists, quote journalists, who see their activism as informing their journalism, and so they have an obligation to sort of defend the little guy or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But I think politics, for sure, is a separate factor. And by politics, I don't mean that liberals are sitting in editing rooms and control rooms watching the, the footage in Ferguson and saying, how do we blame this on Republicans? I, I, I don't that's not what I mean, although I'm sure that happens in some cases. I mean. There's a politics of, uh, let's say. There's there's an agenda here. And a laziness on the part of a lot of reporters, journalists, and people in the news who look at a situation through a lens of politics and they think, who is the victim here and whose politics can I blame for it? And I believe that because the media is so liberal, that that gap genuinely gets filled by conservatives. Who is the victim? Conservatives must be responsible. Um, well, the victim in this case is Michael Brown. Conservative politics and policies must be responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm sure that happens in right-leaning news as well. I'm trying to buy this. So in this instance, let's apply it to this situation and this story. Would it be conservatives stand for, and they are they are incorrect in this analysis, but conservatives stand for law and order and strong militarized police departments. So that's the bad guy in the story. That's the wrong side, and that's where politics comes in. Exactly, and and we we'll talk about the militarization aspect in in a minute because that's that's important too. But exactly, if you look at a case like Clive and Bundy, um, the the liberal media looked at that and said, okay, who is the victim? Well, it wasn't Clive and Bundy. The victim in this case was law enforcement. Certainly an inconsistent application. Law enforcement trying to defend against these crazy, out-of-control conservatives. So the victim was law enforcement, must be the result of some conservative crazies, and those are the the villains. Okay, so we've got— So there's a politics that informs this as well. We've got— the Hollywood storyline, A, we've got uh, a misperception of their job, champion the little guy, B, uh, politics, C, and I think we have to address race as D. Now, yeah. how race comes into this, I think, can be complicated. Um, there, you know, I, I think the, the, the invocation of Clive and Bundy is actually a good parallel once again under this multiple choice answer, and that is this. There is an understanding, a, a perhaps correct understanding in the media, that there is tension between law enforcement and the black community in America. Yeah. And there needs to be a story that illustrates this. And here we have it. Right. Here we have right. black victim, um, white law enforcement. Yeah. Here's our racial issue. It attaches itself to a larger societal issue. Run with it. Right. And and Trayvon was a similar situation was until and, Zimmerman turned out to be Hispanic. And so you never stopped to ask, is this a good Example of the larger story you're trying to tell, the larger race issue you're trying to tell. Same thing with Clive and Bundy. I'm saying larger issue of government intrusion into life is Clive and Bundy's story the appropriate proxy to have that conversation. I think you have four choices there, and let's yeah. open it up to the audience. 888-900-3393. We're going to take a quick break, come back, hopefully hear from you, and talk about also the uh, growing militarization of our police departments on Cannon Cup. 
This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. We're asking the question this morning, what is it that causes the media to essentially check their journalistic credentials at the door uh, to stop being skeptics, to stop asking questions, and start becoming, I don't know, cheerleaders or actors in the stories that are in front of us? We're talking specifically about the story of Ferguson, Missouri. And as information continues to come out, like the fact that Michael Brown was potentially a robbery suspect, which... It is not disconnected from the, the the eventual shooting of him. It is not two separate stories. Oh, no, they will tell you it is. I know they will. And and let me tell you something. I have no vested interest in the stories besides the truth. It mm-hmm. does change the calculation. It changes the way that stop occurred, why it occurred. Now, I know there's also questions about whether or not the officer knew, knew yeah. that he was a suspect in the robbery. But the point is, all of this information is relevant. <laughs> and you can't start attaching larger storylines like nationwide crisis between African-Americans and law enforcement until you answer all of the journalistic questions. Now, why? Now, we've provided a multiple choice. A, the need for hero and villains, a Hollywood storyline. B, uh, a misunderstanding of their own job, the understanding it's not to seek the truth, but it's to champion the little guy. C, politics, bias comes into the equation. Or D, race plays its ever-present role. I, I'll give you my answer, SC. Okay. Um, I think, and I know it's a little cheap to do this, but it's a it's a combination of B and D. I think it is that they think their job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And because that's, they think that's their job, there is a larger storyline to run to, and that is the oppression of, of, of the black community by the law enforcement. And so you have a combination here, and um, and and that's my my guess of yeah. why this happens over and over from Trayvon Martin to Ferguson. Well, I'll, I'm, I don't mean to 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 be easy either, but I think it's A with a combination of of B, C, and D driving driving <laughs> A. I, I think largely the desire in cable news um, among programmers and producers from the top to create a Hollywood story around every news story, drives everything that they cover. And I think that has driven over the past 10 years the desire to pull activists into journalist roles. Because why? They can humanize the story. They can emote on the story and see, let's better. Not it rates, or they think it but rates. But that's what I'm saying. It rates because they do not think there is room in cable news for fact reporting. That just doesn't pull viewers in. They've got to create a storyline and fill in those blanks, and they've got five minutes to do it. We don't have we don't have an hour. We don't have we don't have three days to wait for the facts to come in so that we can create a story for you. We need the story now. Right. We need it immediately. Who can fill in those blanks? Let's get an activist journalist. Right. Who can fill in those blanks and tell you why you care? Who is the villain? Who is the hero? Who you have to relate to? 
and fill in all those blanks before we even have the facts. Well, let's take a quick break. We've got to take a quick break. We're going to get to your calls when we come back. 888-900-3393. Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. You know that maxim in the criminal justice system, innocent until proven guilty. No, I've not heard of that. Yeah. Well, you never watched Law and Order then. <laughs> um, you know, the, the entire, and I, I grant the premise that I often come with these things as a lawyer, which I am, but the entire system is designed to be a skeptic, right? It's designed to, to thwart crowd mentality. Everybody thinks one thing. Well, the position of honor really, honestly, is to stand up against the crowd. It's to ask questions. It's to question premises, right? And it's not necessarily to always be right. It's to force the assurance of, some, of, of being right, right? It's to force or to stand against the crowd, the mob, running in a certain direction. I think a job of a journalist is largely similar because what you do is essentially verify the truth through this process, right? right? Ask questions, Make sure. Look for the lie. That's the job of a journalist. So why is it they continue to neglect that job when it comes to some of these stories? Chris uh, Liberate on Twitter says, it's A, uh, what you said, SE. It is the media wanting to turn stories into bad versus good. It attracts more viewers. We've given you a multiple choice. We've said, is it that? Is it the need for heroes and villains? Is it a misunderstanding of their job, thinking that their job is to champion the little guy as opposed to seeking the truth? Is it politics? Pure, purely, yeah, purely politics or pure, purely race. Political bias or <laughs> race, right. Which one of these is driving and, this? And let me just say, and, and we're going to take your calls. We've got some callers lined up. I, I knew we would. Um, let me just say the storyline that many in the mainstream media have already crafted around this case could be true, could end up being true. Right. That's beside the point. Right? And that is totally not the point. That's not what we're discussing. Like you said, I also don't have a dog in this fight. I am not angling for a particular outcome. It doesn't affect me that way. I would just like to put the brakes on, look at the facts as we know them, and wait for that outcome to present itself. Because the job of a journalist isn't to take the position of could be true. The Lots job of, of a journalist could be is true. to find the truth, <laughs> yeah. to question, to find the truth. Anyway, let's get some of you guys. Let's go to Mark in Maryland. What do you think, Mark? got to look at the situation is the dog wagging the tail here or is the tail wagging the dog is the media turning around and creating the story more than reporting the story are they uncovering the facts or they're just twisting the facts to give them the ratings they need so they can keep selling those commercials well yeah i think that's right and i think clearly look there have been some good cases of very good reporting on this story we don't want to paint the entire media as as crooked. But I think it's very clear, Mark, that um, there is a desire to create a storyline before all the facts are in. And let me just say, you people out there 
you are to blame for some of this. If we don't hold our media to higher standards, they give us exactly what we deserve. We tune in because we want those storylines. If we demanded better, we might get it. Yeah, and you I know think what? that's why a lot of people actually watch The Blaze because they do, they do want something different. They don't mind that you have an agenda. I mean, here at The Blaze, we're obviously right leaning. They want you to be honest about your agenda, and they want to know that when you're talking about a story, you're going to talk about it in an accurate way. But I, I, I until we demand better from our media producers and program directors at these networks are going to give us exactly what we deserve. Well, you know what? I have agreed with that premise for a long time, what you just said. Ultimately, the consumer is the one that should be held accountable because you'll get what you ask for. However, let me add a caveat to that position of yours. Um, The media company will give you what you ask for, provided they're competent in understanding what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the ratings of most, not just cable news, but broadcast news as well, and its deterioration, what you could say is... Yeah, they're down. They're not very good at understanding what we want. (laughs) No, you're right. And we might be seeing a tide turn right now, which is why you see a shift toward alternative media, toward online media, because... Online media outlets, uh, you know, starting online like The Blaze, then migrating to TV, uh, others are are, are um, experimenting with this, can customize their news far better than these huge box cable news outlets that are practically operating from the Jurassic period that think they know what people want. And you're right. I mean, people are tuning out. Look, Fox News still does very well. A message is being sent. Yeah, right? I think I, mean, I think I every think, ratings report that comes out every day, a message is being sent. I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But we we at the end of the day, we get the news that we deserve. And right. if we if we demand better journalism, I think ultimately we'll get it. All right, let's go to Jim in Minnesota. What's up, Jim? Hey, how are we doing today? Good, thanks. That's good. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you were saying. Uh, or the definitely B and C in my case. B and C. That is politics and race. No, that's uh, activism and politics. Oh, I'm right? sorry. Yeah, yep. Because, uh, like I said, it you know, and I've heard you know as far as reports, as far as uh, from you know when journalists go to school, what they're there for, and they kind of see themselves as you know modern day Don Quixotes. Mm, yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, then they think by their reporting that they're going to change the world and make us the world a better place. When their real job should be. Reporting the news without bias. Exactly. Which would change the world and make the world a better place, right? The goal is lofty. It's why a lot of us get get into journalism and and media. You can want to change the world, but you can't have a predicted, sort of prescribed uh, outlook of how that world will look when you've changed it. You can't, uh, I mean, not at least through objective reporting. The goal of changing the world is good, but you've got to do it by telling exactly what happened. And well, that's I would suggest your job is not to change the world. Your job is simply to find factual, truthful information and but lay it But that will change on, the world. Well, but not necessarily in a positive manner. Not always, right? And that's okay. No, sunshine is always the best disinfectant. You lay these facts on the doorstep of humanity and what they do with it and what it does. Sometimes the truth hurts, right? Yeah, but and, that's ultimately better. Yeah, that's but, ultimately better for society. I just think even a painful truth. I just is think a good you have thing. any emotion attached to it whatsoever. Here it is. I'm sorry for how you feel about this. No, that you're absolutely right. However, the goal of saying I'm going to change the world by reporting the facts, it's up to the world what they do with right. those facts. But I, that's a lofty goal. I totally agree with you, Jim, on the combination of B and C and this. I've often said the media 
is biased as opposed to having an agenda. And if you think about the the idea that your job is to change the world for the better, it's to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That comes with an inherent bias, right? Mm-hmm. Because you go around the world looking at who is at the afflicted, it, who's, comfortable. who's comfortable. They must right. be the bad guy, right? There's your bias. I think. Uh, thanks for the call, Jim. I, I think there is a specific example that I'd like to talk about in this issue that I think really illustrates well how bad the media has been in discussing this. That is the militarization of the police, which very quickly emerged as a storyline and and legitimately uh, out of out of Ferguson when sort of these SWAT forces came into town. People, uh, protesters, journalists, uh, people just watching at home thought something is not right here. And so the media started to cover that angle of this story as they should. But they did it in such a terrible, almost comical way. I'm going to explain when we come back uh, how that happened and why we think that happened. That's up next on Kane Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. Welcome back. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give a, a warning to our, our, our board operator. You might want to turn down my volume because I might get angry in this segment. Hmm. Um, this drives me absolutely crazy. I've been watching the Ferguson coverage, and I, I've, we've started to cover the, uh, the angle of the militarization of the police. That is an important part of this story. I don't think it's overblown. I don't think it should be ignored. It's a good impulse to cover that angle. But the way it's being covered in the mainstream media is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed by it because I'm part of this uh, machine, as are you, Will. It's embarrassing. I'm going to play one example. This is the example that first caught my eye. And it actually sparked, I went on Twitter, and it sparked this whole sort of um, mushroom cloud of, of, of events uh, just just play this. This is from CNN. This is a, a pundit you might n- have seen before. His name is Elsie Granderson. And if I can just add one more thing, Carol, we've seen uh, all these libertarians rush to the aid of American citizens who seem to be under siege by the government. And here we have these citizens in Ferguson, and I don't see a Rand Paul, I don't see a Priebus, I don't see anyone from the libertarian or Republican movement who talk about small government and overstepping American citizens' rights coming to the fore, either on camera or on social media, to talk about the situation. You want to appeal to minority voters, this is how you do it. You don't just come to the aid of white people that are being under siege by the government. You come to the aid of Americans who are under siege by the government. Are you kidding me? Elsie must not have Google. I, I know you're friends with Elsie. I do TV with Elsie. This is not personal, but he must mm. not have Google. Because a simple Google search. Look, when I go on TV and I'm about to tell, I'm, I'm about to say, where is this entire group of people talking about this issue? This entire group of people has not been talking about this issue. I do a quick Google search. Group of people. Issue. Just to make sure what I'm saying is not crazy pants. This is crazy pants. <laughs> not only have libertarians like Rand Paul and Justin Amash and Ted Cruz come out to talk about 
this issue on this case. Libertarians and conservatives have been talking about the militarization of the police for a decade. Right. For a decade. You and I have done it a number of times at the table at The Blaze. On Real News, we've had this topic numerous times. Numerous times. Anybody that watches Real News would know about MRAPs. Right. Um, assault weapons, whatever you want. Arming the federal Night government. vision. Right. <laughs> uh, the swatification of the police. There is an, an entire tab at Reason.com, military, which is a libertarian publication, called Militarization of the Police. It is 30 pages long. 30 pages going back to 2006 on this issue. A guy who wrote the definitive book, Rise of the Warrior Cop, uh, on the militarization of police, Radley Balco, libertarian. This is, and this goes to my, this goes to my, um, my analysis that there is a desire among some people in the press to say, here is the victim. Conservatives must be to blame. Conservatives must be actively to blame, or. Um, must be ignoring this victim. Well, the argument in response to you would be this. The one I think that LZ or somebody would make is you will hear the conservatives or libertarians talk about the militarization of police when it comes to situations like Clive and Bundy or when it comes to a small-town marijuana dealer having his door busted in by cops dressed in military gear. But you don't hear – this is their argument – you don't hear it when it's black protesters in Ferguson, Missouri. Not true. You're right. Also not true. Not true. Because you can point to Justin Amash, libertarian congressman who said this looks like a war zone. You can point to Ted Cruz, who said journalists should never be arrested in the United States of America in a situation like this. You can point to Rand Paul, who wrote an article in Time magazine, as you said, on on this this incident. That's on this story. But you can go back and see other examples of conservatives and libertarians talking about the militarization of the police, no matter who the victim is, white or black. As a bad thing. That exists. It's not just LZ. Washington Post did a write-up. Where are the libertarian voices? Where have they been? Google. Google, people. I mean, it is so embarrassing that there's a group of people who would indict an entire population without doing a simple Google search to make sure that this indictment is accurate. It's embarrassing. You should be embarrassed of the way that you are covering. Maybe you've just discovered this issue. We haven't. No, that's a fact. Yes. You must have just come upon this issue. Congratulations. Welcome to the conversation. Right. Come join us. The water's warm. And that's not to say that Republicans are united on this issue. We're not. We have different ideas across the spectrum about what to do about it. But we've been debating it for years. You just figured out what it was, and already you're indicting half the country and half of the political class for ignoring an issue you just discovered. And the truth is, if you want to find inconsistency, as you pointed out earlier in the hour, the inconsistency is on the left who had nothing to say. Nothing. About the militarization of law enforcement when it came to the Bundy Ranch situation. Yeah. No, in fact, they were pro. The, the, the law enforcement in the Bundy situation, well, they were keeping the peace against these crazy conservatives. But this is different. Oh, this is different because they've just discovered it. Right. And it, it involves victims that they can get behind now. It's absolutely, it's, it's infuriating and absurd. You know, from reason to the blaze. Glenn Beck talked about this last year. In a very impassioned plea uh, on on his radio show, 
It's Fox News. It's John Stossel. It's National Review. It's Charles Cook. It's Kevin Williamson. Do some GD research is what I have to say. Because there is no excuse. There is no excuse for pointing your finger at someone and saying you're to blame for this when you've just come upon it and you've been the one right. who's had a dereliction of duty. You've been the one who hasn't hasn't been talking about this issue. We have been. There's just no excuse for it. And and I think I think it goes to all of the things we talked about. The desire to find a victim, the desire to create a storyline before you have all the facts, politics, politics. race. It's all there. You know what isn't? The truth. The truth is not there anywhere because if it were, you'd google this before you went on television and criticized an entire group of people for not doing the homework you didn't do. You didn't do. Did you turn down her mic ever, Jose? You did. You lowered her mic? I um, warned you. I warned you. I, I, oh, I'm you, upset about it. You are. You, that, is, that, that is what one would call a rant. <sighs> that, was out, that was outrage. That was, I did my outrage for the week. I'm good. We'll be back after the short break. We're going to talk about SE's had to run in with her neighbors because of situations <laughs> like this rant. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to Cannon Cup. I'm Will Kane. I make calmer, more relaxed SE Cup. At least for the moment. I've calmed down. I needed to get that out of my system. It was really bothering me. Well, I promised to include some topics that might rile you up a little more. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk about Tony Stewart and what potential. Oh, that could get me going. Yeah, what potential, realistically, could there be for criminal charges? What kind of criminal charges? What's the history oh, of athletes? having criminal charges brought against him. This is key for things that happen on the athletic field. We're not going to venture into the very deep and vast world of athletes and crimes outside yeah, yeah, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, things that happen within the context of the sport. That's right. And I think we're going to have a lawyer on to talk, and also my friend Michael Waltrip is going to come on and talk to us specifically about the Tony Tony situation, which is great. Glad, glad to have him. But um, so I just moved into a new neighborhood in northern Virginia. And, uh, you know, I lived in New York City for 14 years. So the concept of neighbors was very unique, right? Um, neighbors in New York, I don't, I don't even know. Oh, neighbors. I, I didn't, 14 years, I never talked to neighbors. There's a combination of factors that make that somewhat unique to you. Just not oh, completely. But to I New know Yorkers. my neighbors. I know my neighbors in That's New York. That's crazy. <laughs> That's ludicrous. You were single. Uh, no, wasn't. Well. Incorrect. Okay. Well, I wasn't married, but uh, for all of that time, more I, importantly, unfriendly. I, I I lived with a man. Um, if that's if that's what you're getting at, I did not live alone. If that's what you mean, An, a general unwillingness to uh, meet strangers. That's true. I blame New York City. I mean, New York City made me who I am. Not just an unwillingness, like facial expressions Hostile. that w- should express don't come within ten yards. One hundred percent. If if I ever if I were ever in my apartment building. In New York City, and a neighbor smiled at me. I'm calling the police. Yeah, I'm calling the police. I mean, clearly that's hyperbole, but not far. No, no, <laughs> it's not. That's psychotic behavior. Don't look at me. 
It's weird. In New York, I'm sorry, you might be the exception. In New York, hey, we Bob, avoid, how you doing? Yeah, we avoid our neighbors. That's psychotic. Um, so, but anyway, I don't live in New York anymore. I live in Northern Virginia, and I live in a, a small town across the river from D.C., which I love. It's lovely. Um, it's a lot like the small town I grew up in, in New England. So I, it reminds me of, of, of being a kid. And we have a house and, and neighbors. And um, they are definitely friendlier, right? More outgoing than neighbors in New York City, I am learning. And that's been a bit of an adjustment for me. Mm. But we have particular neighbors down the street. We go for a long walk on the river on the weekends. And there is a guy. Well, let me ask you this. Let me start a different way here because I'm curious. I'm curious you, Will, and, and folks at home. Um, Do you collect anything, Will? I'm not a big collector. Don't have many items that would... No, you don't. You're, you're not. I mean, I told you maybe cowboy boots. Maybe I have. Oh yeah, cowboy boots. Quite a few boots. pairs of cowboy boots. Could you ever? I don't consciously go of... about saying I'm collecting them. You happen to have a mass. I hoard them. Yes. Okay. You don't. You don't get rid of them. Right. Could you ever conceive of inviting people over to look at and discuss your cowboy boots, <laughs> and then also also. Bring bring cowboy boots of their own to also discuss. Could you conceive of that happening? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I got an idea. Why don't y'all come on over? Bring your boots. I'll get mine out. <laughs> we'll make a day of it. However. We'll make a day of it. <laughs> um, I have buddies who have similar interests. And, I mean, I have gone into them, their closets and said, let me see. What do you got? Oh, you got a pair of ostrich there. Those are good looking. Let me see those. And gone through. Oh, look at those! those oh, interesting. Are nice. That oh, has interesting. happened. That has. Has happened. it happened for five hours? No. Or usually the conversation's done at about five minutes, ten minutes. Yeah, okay. more like that. Um, so there's a neighbor who I think works on old classic cars, and every Saturday, in the summer anyway, puts them in the street, and then all these friends of his. Bring their classic cars over, puts them in the street, and they talk about their cars together. That's a little bit awesome. Right. So, right. There's a man cave aspect to this. He opens up his garage. There's a total tricked out man cave in there. They make a day of it. They barbecue. They drink beer. And And, they talk about their cars. And classic cars, look, I don't collect things. And you asked me yesterday, am I a car person? And the answer to that inevitably must be no. But if you said to me... These guys come over and they park the most expensive Ferraris and Lamborghinis and no, Maybach's classic. up, and, classic, up yeah. and down the street. Yeah. That would be much less interesting to me oh, than if you uh-huh. said these like classic 1950s, that's what it is. 60s cars. That's, the Roadsters. That's and, cool. Yeah. So, and I'm not disparaging this. This is a group of people who have a similar interest who are getting together on a Saturday with their families. And it's like an organizing principle for them. And it's cool. I'm just trying to imagine... A similar, a similar situation where I would um, invite people over to discuss one of my collections. I can't conceive of it. The, the closest, and I think it's a, a man-woman thing too, the closest thing I can imagine for women would be like, um, come into my closet, look at my shoes, let's discuss my shoe collection, my, my Louboutins. Sure. Um, you know, and we'd say things like... Um, are those the original souls? <laughs> or uh, like what's what's the mileage on these? How how long have you had these, right? 
And my, maybe we'd talk about our our shoes that way, but for like 10 minutes. You collect. I mean, you, you like guns. You'd love to do this around the around I have, guns. I have collections. I have guns. I collect knives. I collect Barbary War paraphernalia. Oh, my God. <laughs> I really don't. You missed it. You missed it. I, I, um, I talked about my geeky collections on the air when you weren't here one time. Barbary War paraphernalia. I collect religious kits. I hate I missed that. <laughs> anyway, I would never conceive of inviting people over with their Barbary War paraphernalia to discuss our Barbary War paraphernalia for a day. It just would never, I can't imagine it. It would never happen for me. Hmm. I think it's kind of fun. Uh, you got a bunch of classic cars lined up. And they I would, look like they're having fun. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. But it's every weekend. It's every week. So if you're the guy, the new, I imagine. Do new cars come every weekend, or do you see the same cars every weekend? I, I see the same cars. But if you're the guy, you are having the same conversation, ostensibly, about your cars every weekend. Hmm. And he does not seem to get bored. He does not seem to get tired of this conversation. He wants to be asked the same questions over and over again about his cool car collection. Um, he, I mean, it must really be a labor of love to want to talk about the same thing be. every single weekend with people, with strangers. Let me tell you a quick story about Bring my, your cars. my boot collections. Um, <laughs> I got married in my late 20s, and the attire for me and my groomsmen was boots, khakis, navy blazer, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody had boots, mm-hmm. and I, I thought, I'll, I'll get boots for some guys, and... That's but, a nice gift, too. Yeah. Well, but I didn't. Oh. But but I went on eBay and started looking for boots. And then I'm like, I want some of these boots because a lot of them were vintage and like you know these like old lizard boots. I like lizard skin. Uh, breaks in really nicely. But um, <laughs> I set my parameters on shoe size somewhere around like a size nine to eleven. I'm probably closer to eleven. But I bought them up, boy. I bought probably six pairs of boots. And you didn't give many away. The point is, I got like six pairs of size nine boots. That I wore then for oh a year or two after, which led to the Great Bunyan scare bar- of two thousand barely fit, yeah, of two thousand seven to two thousand nine. <laughs> yeah, when I learned like the Japanese hobble, you know, they do the hobbling of the feet and uh-huh. stuff or whatever. This is you, you your shoe size matters. Yeah. I should get shoes that fit. Yeah, boots that fit. Every woman already. I still oh, have every them, woman by the who's way. been there still have them. You go into a sample sale and you see those. Those great-looking shoes, right. and they're totally not your size. I can fit in that. I can shove it in. I can definitely <laughs> fit into that. You you, you can go bigger because you just get insoles and, and, and inserts. And, and so I've bought size bigger before. Size smaller, that's where you get into problems. That's right. You make that mistake once or twice, and then then you realize it's not worth it. I don't it's care. It's to talk are, yourself out of a beautiful the, pair of Lucases from 1982 that are on sale for $90, yeah. only worn by one owner. Right. No, whose foot is perfectly sorry. molded to that boot. Yeah. <laughs> but you, they belong on your foot. Um, all, all right. right. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to break down um, the Tony Stewart situation from a week ago. Mm-hmm. What potential criminal charges could be in store? What is a prosecutor oh, going over in his mind right now? What questions is he asking regarding that incident? When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to... Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network.
888-900-3393. Kane and Cup returns now. If you know me at all, you know I'm a Tony Stewart fan. I've been following him for like a decade. I've met him. I've interviewed him. I've interviewed people close to him, NASCAR officials, his former crew chief, um, his former team owner, Joe Gibbs. I've written about him. I'm a fan. I say that outright um, so that you know that uh, I might be a little defensive of him. But this week, the coverage of the incident last Saturday at uh, the Sprint Cup, uh, Sprint Car dirt, Dirt Track Race in New York was really, really bothersome to me. Because once again, and this is, you know, just a theme these days, the media was getting ahead of the story. Casual observers also seem to rush to judgment and try Tony Stewart in the court of public opinion, um, which I can understand because not everyone follows NASCAR. I get it. You see this horrific video of a driver running over another driver on the track. If you're not informed and you don't understand what you're watching, I guess you could say, Tony Stewart just murdered that guy. That's what people, on my Twitter timeline at least, have said. But the problem is when sports writers are leaping to similar conclusions, and I find that to be really reprehensible. A, it just goes to show me most sports writers don't follow NASCAR. Um, Unless you're like on a NASCAR beat, you really don't know what you're talking about. And we saw so many just inaccuracies reported this week by quote-unquote sports writers talking about this incident and the main problem I've seen is a desire to bring quote-unquote Tony's temper into this storyline as if um, his history of past behavior is really the only thing we need to know forget the fact that Kevin Ward Jr. walked into oncoming traffic on a dark track dark night dark uniform with a dark helmet on. Forget that fact. Forget the fact that his is the only temper we saw that day. Let's talk about the fact that Tony Stewart has a reputation for losing his temper. Um, If you're going to bring up all of his past behavior, then you need to be comprehensive about it. And I, I got so frustrated this week that I wrote about it in the New York Daily News To give you a more complete picture of who Tony Stewart is, he's one of the most philanthropic, generous, well-liked guys in the sport. Despite the fact that he runs his mouth, by the way, not unique. He's not the only one. Um, And despite the fact that he's really good at at driving, really good at racing, um, drivers almost to a person will tell you what a good guy Tony Stewart is. Yeah, you and I uh, began to have this conversation yesterday, and I disagree with you on this. Um, I think Tony Stewart's temper does matter. It matters in attempting to discern what happened a week ago today. Um, you said, does his temper the only thing that matters? Clearly, it's not the only thing that matters. But is it relevant? It is. And I actually think it's irrelevant that you bringing up all of the philanthropic Good deeds. Oh, I do too. Tony, no, I think that is irrelevant. So do I. I'm doing oh. it to counter the rest of the narrative. Well, if, if I saw Tony Stewart temper on Saturday, which I didn't, if I saw it, then I would think it's relevant. Well, I don't think it's relevant when it wasn't on display on Saturday, and plenty of drivers have had confrontations with other drivers. But if you're going to bring it up, and I don't mean you, but if Vox Populi 
is going to bring up Tony Stewart's temper as a mitigating factor. Let's bring up all of his past behavior. That's the only reason I introduce it. I don't think it's relevant to this case. No, I other think you're wrong. Seem I to. think you're wrong. Here's why. If we were investigating uh, some other murder, a uh, man murders his wife, right? We wouldn't sit here and talk about, let's make sure we understand how much he gives to charity. Let's make sure we understand exactly what his relationship is with everyone else. Yes, you would. You'd bring in character witnesses to talk about the complete picture of this person. Let's Okay, let's change the equations somewhat. Let's say the accusation is of a passion, a crime of passion, right? So um, similar to with the accusations here that it's something where he lost his temper. You keep saying, well, his temper wasn't – I didn't see any evidence of it that day. But that's I the nature – Neither did you. But that's the nature of temper. You don't see it before it happens. That's kind of the definition of having a temper. It doesn't let you know it's coming. It but flashes. you're a lawyer. You would never suggest in a court of law someone was murdered, therefore the defendant lost his temper. No, you, you, you can't you, make that causal connection. But I'm not. I'm arguing relevance, right? And so I'm not arguing conclusion. I'm not saying Tony Stewart did this. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you're trying to uh, discern or ascertain what happened, his temper is relevant information. His philanthropy is not. I think if you're looking clinically at what happened on that track and Tony Stewart is not accused of murder, Tony Stewart will not be accused of murder. No, and I know true. you're going to get into you're going to get right. into the legal aspect of this, and we'll have a lawyer to come on. But I just want to be clear: right. Tony Stewart's not a murderer. Um, that's that's not up for debate. But if you're looking clinically at what happened on that track, I need to see evidence of someone's temper and his character from the past. I don't think matters. This is not a crime of passion. But it would. What I'm telling you is if there's any – how about this? If there's any parallel between the court of public opinion, which is largely what you're arguing about right now, and the court of law, it is that if some past pattern of behavior is in existence, it can inform the incident we're attempting to – Then tell me what is the past pattern of behavior. Tony Stewart has, as far as I know, never run someone over before. Right. You know, you have much broader NASCAR historical knowledge than I do, but I am under the popular conception Tony Stewart does have a bad temper. He does. It, hold on. And it has manifested itself in the sport, whether or not that's running someone, not, not out of their car, someone who's in their car into the wall. Sure. Or whatever. Or has he gotten in a fight? Outside, yes. Outside of, yes. Not, uh, not alone, by the way. Right. You're right. No, and I, I'm not trying to say. It's not about whether or not you're alone or you're unique. It's, whether or not it's part of your pattern of behavior. Well, insofar as Tony Stewart has been in confrontations, yes. So have plenty of other drivers. And I don't know yes. that you can treat Tony. It would be relevant for them as well if they were in this situation. Uh, but but I, I don't think you could find a driver who has not had a confrontation with another driver or a driver who hasn't run someone into the wall. Part of this is what happens in the sport. But you're saying and- to me those are not those are not examples of him losing his temper. And I would say, I don't know about that. Um. No, I've I've admitted Tony Stewart has a temper. Frankly, it's part of why I find him a compelling driver, and so many others do too. I did not see his temper in evidence on Saturday, and I would admit if I did. Right. And n- neither did anyone else because the video footage we saw does not show from Tony's perspective what his intent was behind the wheel of that car. That's right. We'll get so, and as you said, we're going to get into the legal analysis of about intent and recklessness. If Tony and got those out of the car and yeah. charged Kevin Ward Jr. and a confrontation ensued, then I would say, "Okay, Tony Stewart was pissed." And you know, I'm not sure what he was trying to do there, but that was a mitigating factor in what happened later. I saw no evidence of Tony's temper. The only 
temper I saw was Kevin Ward Jr. storming out of his car into oncoming traffic during a race to confront another driver who he thought had wronged him. The temper would be circumstantial. Yeah. It would be, yeah. you're right, we don't have video of Tony losing his temper, but its relevance would be circumstantial. Uh, you're right. Real quick, and then we'll we'll bring in this lawyer, which, which is great. Um, one of the worst, most irresponsible analyses that I saw was Colin Coward on ESPN. This is just shocking. He indicted all of Southern culture, believe it or not. Southern culture is unique, he says. Um, aggression there is a, quote, Southern delicacy. There is an eye-for-an-eye culture in the South that rewards this. This is a joke. He says NASCAR doesn't get ratings anywhere outside of the South. False. It's the second most-watched spectator sport in the country. False. That's really disgusting. Well, That's a, really more disgusting. More than an indictment of Tony Stewart. It's an indictment of— Half the country. Yeah. Half the country. Really disgusting. All right, let's go a little deeper into uh, why Tony Stewart's past and mindset are relevant when it comes to potential criminal charges on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return. Welcome back. We're talking about what potential criminal charges, what we can know about what went on between Tony Stewart and Kevin Ward Jr. a week ago in a sprint car race here in New York State. I want to go to Joe in Vermont right off the bat. Joe, uh, what do you think? Hey, listen, guys, I'm going to make this really quick because I know you've got a guest coming up, but three really quick points. One, um, the way that you drive a sprint car on dirt or uh, mud, as if it will, because it gets tacky, you drive it more with the throttle and the brake than you do with the steering wheel. Okay? Right. Uh, that's how the, 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 the thing works. The other thing is... So you're explaining had, there why it looks like in the video that, that Stewart is actually accelerating into, into work. Correct. The other thing that you know, if you've ever, and SE, you know this, uh, because you've been around the sport, uh, when cars come under caution, they're doing all kinds of things. These are highly perform- high-performance race cars yep. that are, are designed to go fast. really, really fast, and now all of a sudden they're doing 40 miles an hour. Okay? Right. And so they're... They're 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 feathering the gas. They're feathering it. Mm-hmm. They're, so if, if you had a longer video um, than what you saw, there were probably um, twenty twenty five cars in that race. Uh, four or five of those cars that went through that turn at that particular time, whether Kevin Ward was on the track or not, whether there was a car on the track or not, would have hit the gas at that point on the track, uh, just to keep the car running. Right. Okay? Right. So that's uh, number two. Uh, number three, the odds are, and it's just as plausible, that Tony Stewart didn't even know that he was involved in the incident until he came around the track after the caution came out. Uh, because you talking uh, about the incident that, that wrecked Kevin Ward in the beginning? The, correct. Because here's the thing: if you watch the video, there is no, um, there, there doesn't appear to be a lot of contact. It appears like uh, mm-hmm. they ran out of racing room. Okay. Yeah. And, and Ward ended up in the wall, but there wasn't a lot of heavy contact between Stewart and Ward. And so, because a sprint car 
the whole right side of the car is a giant wing. Yeah. You can't see. You're looking forward. You're racing. It's it's just as plausible that he didn't even know that Kevin Ward had hit the wall and spun out until he came around the track for the for the for the for the caution well, lap. Yeah. And and lastly, lastly, the deal is: listen, if you're a race car driver, all of this malarkey about smoke's temper and everything yeah. else. Listen, if you're a race car driver and you're involved in an altercation on the track and you have four tires with air in it and your car is still moving, mm-hmm. you're not angry. Mm-hmm. You survived it. You're, you're you're moving. You're continuing to race. You're not mad at anyone else. All right, Joe. Appreciate the uh, call. Those are good points. Um, let me tell you what I think prosecutors are debating right now. Here's the plausible scenario they're attempting to find out if it's true and if there's information that suggests it's true. There is absolutely, as Essie said, no potential. I think for Tony Stewart to be prosecuted for first degree murder. That requires intent. In order to understand intent, we would have to have Tony Stewart essentially admitting I wanted to hit. Kevin Ward Jr. The next step is second-degree murder, which is a depraved indifference to life. Again, I think Joe laid out some very interesting points, mm-hmm. and many have said this, that's just not possible as well. What's interesting and what's plausible is second-degree manslaughter, which is recklessly cause the death of another person. That would go like this. Uh, Tony Stewart knows, uh, despite what Joe said, he's involved in an altercation with Kevin Ward. He sees Kevin Ward coming out to confront him. He decides, I want to scare him. I want to spray him with mud. I want to do something like that. He's reckless to that extent and ends up running over Kevin Ward Jr. That's the plausible scenario. And by the way, that's where his temper would become relevant, wanting to spray him, wanting to scare him in some way, that a prosecutor is debating and eventually could decide to put to a jury because it's a factual question. Is Was he reckless? I think that's what's going on. I think that's the calculation. That's what they're attempting to ascertain from the video. But I'll tell you this. I agree there's incomplete information, and they'll most likely never know the answer to those things because it would require Tony Stewart to say. you would, A video in the end also would, would largely not solve it. You'd have no. to have Tony Stewart say, I wanted to scare him. You'd have to have Tony Stewart's dash cam video, which doesn't exist. Tony Stewart admitting to some intent there. And the 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 car forensics to prove right. that this car... Whose car moved? That's right. Did the car in front of Tony Stewart, who managed to avoid well, Kevin yeah, Ward? Ha- or did, did Tony he, Stewart's did, car move? Did Tony's car hit him because it fishtailed and hit him from the side? Did Tony Stewart's car hit him... I mean, the forensics of proving who left that their line would be, would on, be tough. on track. Yeah let's, let's, yeah, let's bring in Alex Little. Yeah, uh, he's, he's a, a lawyer. We had him on last week. It was great to have his take, so we brought him back. Now, Alex, we know you, know you might not have direct knowledge of what's going on with this case, and we don't know that it's being prosecuted. Uh, it's still being investigated. But Will wants to ask you broadly about these kinds of incidents. They're... They're rare, it seems like. We don't hear a lot about trying crimes in the course of a sporting event. And the outcomes are incredibly inconsistent, Alex. Yeah, it's incredibly rare. And I think it's incredibly rare, one, because there's a legal question of sort of what meets the bar legally to let you get into the courtroom and accuse an athlete of a violent act when the sport may itself involve violence. And the second question is there's a prudential question. The prosecutor thinks, you know, I put this in front of the jury. They're never going to buy it. Right. We're not going to waste our resources on this sort of case. And so that's exactly what's going on, I think, in the prosecutor's mind, thinking about the Tony Stewart matter and, and the death of Mr. Ward. All the things we've talked about absolutely are affecting that. And I think it's going to really require some sort of decent evidence about intent. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think, am I correct that there was no radio in the car that night? Uh, no I don't, radio traffic? I'm not sure. There might have been radio communication between Tony and a spotter or Tony and a crew chief. I mean, I'm not I sure mean, in I sprint cars if there is. That's probably the most important uh, piece of evidence would be any – presuming they're not recorded – getting that person under oath in the grand jury who he's talking to. And what did Tony say after the accident? Did he know he'd been in an accident? Did he say anything like, you know, I'm going to scare the shit out of that kid. Right. So um, you're saying no, we, we, we have to get into his, uh, his mindset. Uh, it is uh, my understanding absolutely. that sprint, sprint cars, um, sprint cars recently, and I will, I will fact check this, but I was looking at the safety precautions in sprint car races. Sprint car recently put spotters on top of the stands just as they are, for regular NASCAR mm-hmm. racer, uh, races so that there is that ability to see what is coming up. Is there a wreck ahead? What do you need to avoid? Yeah. So it's my understanding that, and if there are spotters, then at least the spotter can talk to the crew chief and the crew chief can talk to the driver, if not directly yep. to the driver. Alex, really SE and I have had a yeah. debate this morning uh, about whether or not Tony's temper and his past is potentially Absolutely relevant to a prosecutor. Relevant. Absolutely relevant. Yeah, now, so there would be a huge debate as to what would get in and what would not get in. Um, you generally can't admit somebody's sort of character for being a hothead mm. in a case. Um, you'd have to show that it was potentially his modus operandi. This is the, this is, you'd have to argue to the judge that this is the way this guy operates, and it's relevant because he's always racing with a hot temper, mm. and he did it before, and he's doing it here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an evidentiary question, but if you get past the judge, the jury would certainly be able to consider previous incidents like this, the mm. throwing of the... The helmet, yeah. other incidents on the track, absolutely. So, Alex, let me ask you this: I want to. I'd, I'd love to run through a few famous examples with you. I know you weren't the prosecutor, sure. weren't in the room on some of these, but it, some of them are absolutely uh, incomprehensible. The most famous for me is Mike Tyson biting the ear off of Evander Holyfield. Right. You mentioned <laughs> earlier. Look, is it in, correct, is, Alex? You were not there. <laughs> I was not. Although okay. I did watch that fight. Okay, we all did, and and we all had the same reaction. And then this is not oh. part of the sport. I no, mean, that doesn't happen. Which is key for the potential criminal charge. Is it an acceptable risk? Is it considered part of the nature of the sport? Mike Tyson, biting your, having your ear bitten off is clearly not. And no criminal charges were brought against Mike Tyson. Why? And I think that's because boxing, there, there's just a different level of violence in certain sports that are just accepted. And, you know, you say it's not, it's certainly not a common occurrence, but those folks are butting heads all the time. You'll see a boxer, you know, getting a legal headbutt in. Um, and there's certainly violent acts happening in the, in the face area all the time. And did Mike Tyson's take it well over the line? Absolutely. But you have a circumstance in a boxing match. They're, they're literally trying to kill each other. They're mm-hmm. trying to knock the other person out. Well, and maybe Holyfield um, didn't press charges. But I mean, you, But you don't have to have the victim press charges. I mean, that's not a wouldn't, no, wouldn't it help? I think that's very different than mm-hmm. hockey. What's the goal of hockey? It's to score more goals. Right. So if you take a hockey stick and you're hitting somebody in the back of the head and you know breaking their back, you got you have some famous examples. Marty McSorley of the Bruins is probably the most famous example. Right, where he went after a, a Vancouver Canuck. He slashed he Donald Brashear in the head, uh, sent him to the yeah. ice in convulsions. But but Marty McSorley uh, not only was charged, he was convicted and got eighteen months, eighteen Absolutely. months probation. And but I think there's just a difference between hockey, which is still a violent sport, and boxing, where literally you are trying to make the other person incapacitated. Well, let me ask, so there's, um, let me give yeah. a different example, because this one also astounds me. In 1999, the star pitcher for the Wichita State Shockers, Ben Christensen, he, was, he did become a first-round draft pick, saw Anthony Molina 
warming up um, between the batter's box and the on-deck circle. He hadn't stepped into the batter's box, but he was warming his uh, swings to Christensen's pitches. So he's timing the pitches, right? So uh, Christensen throws a 92-mile-hour fastball into Molina's, uh, I believe it's his left eye, basically blinds him, loses most of his vision in his left eye, Um, and no criminal charges. And the DA in that case said that Christensen had been coached that you, this is an acceptable thing for you to do, which absolutely to is, brush back uh, the the batter. Yeah, but a yeah. batter who's not in the box. Right, right. Um, He's crowding the plate. He's not at one, the plate. Why not no charges? All. Why no charges? Uh, I think that was a bad call. I mean, I think prosecutors. Look, there, there are, I can give you plenty of examples about bad prosecutors in the country. Uh, we have we have an interesting indictment down in Texas that sort of demonstrates that prosecutors kind of do their own thing. Um, I think prosecutors are often scared about sports cases. They're scared that juries won't convict. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was, a, you know, there have been certainly examples where you've had hung juries where you get one or two people on the jury who are like, you know, it's sports, let you know, let it all happen. Um, but I don't think there's any justification for that case, and there are a couple others that are very similar. Right. Well, Alex, let me there let me should have been a charge. Let, Alex, let, we got to go to a break, but let me ask you this: I don't anticipate this investigation resulting in criminal charges. If it does for Tony Stewart, where do you predict that goes with a ju- know, with a judge and a jury? I think that if they if they're going to press charges, they're going to have some evidence of a statement or some evidence of conduct in the way the race car was driven in the hundred yards before he hit board. That's pretty compelling about what Tony Stewart was thinking. Mm-hmm. And if they have that evidence, I certainly could see him being charged. And then he's going to have a tough time in front of a jury. Huh. Uh, there were, you know, it, but, it, but it depends. But we on don't have that evidence, that evidence so evidence far, exists. right? Yeah. And and I don't think they're going to charge it without that. Right, but if they get a charge, I would be surprised if they would bring a charge. If they charge him, they probably have something. Is what you're saying? Thanks, Alex. All right, Alex, appreciate it. You know what Joe was saying earlier. Our caller, Joe from Vermont, obviously is a very knowledgeable NASCAR driver. Um, I drove a NASCAR car at Pocono once alone. Right, me and the driver. NASCAR, not Sprint. NASCAR, correct. Totally different cars. Totally, but I drove it myself alone around the Tricky Triangle at Pocono. I got up to about 140, which is a crazy speed, very uncomfortable for me. I did not enjoy it at all. But the first thing they'll tell you before you get in the car is, you better keep that up above 6,000 RPMs because this car is not designed to go slow. It will create problems for you if you drive too slowly. Um, Because I just said, okay, if I get scared out there, I'll just just go 60. No, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't because this car will malfunction essentially. Right. Well, give us a call. Let us know what you think. 888-900-3393. We'd love to know your take. Is there enough information here? What would you need to know? Um, in the meantime, we need to also know this. What's the line on publicly changing the diaper on your baby? Where? Oh, boy. Can you do it? And where? I need to know. Can't you do it? I need to know. Next on Ken and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. that um, sprint sprint car races had put had started putting spotters on on uh, on the stands. Uh, uh, someone on Twitter at Liberty Love Blog 
was kind enough to write in. They do not have spotters or radios in sprint cars, and I just did a quick no radios. No, and I and I just did a quick search, and uh, apparently that's right. There are no, there's no radio communication between drivers and spotters or crew chiefs, and there's no spotters at these sprint car races. So, so you're gonna have very- Tony would not have been told. You just caused a wreck, or there's a wreck ahead, or driver on the track. You know, as he would have at a NASCAR race under caution. And there will be no radio traffic of Tony saying, I'm going to spray this. And exactly, vice versa, you're not going to have Tony's communication, which would maybe let you know. I mean, something about his mindset. Something about his mindset, yeah. Right. So without that, it's going to be very hard to prove he was either being reckless, certainly, that he had any kind of intent. And without that kind of evidence, he just, yeah. It's incomplete. Well, it'll be interesting. We have Michael Waltrip coming up in the next hour. I'd love a driver's, he's both a driver and a team owner, point of view on this. Mm -hmm. He knows Tony. He knows what's quote-unquote racing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Rubbin's part of racing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all the things that that we might think um, seem crazy might be part of racing. And it'll be interesting to get his opinion. I haven't asked Michael what he thinks about this, so I don't know. He might, he might think Tony's got a problem on his hands, or like me, he might think, um, you know, Tony didn't do anything wrong here, and it was just a tragic accident, but it'll be interesting to get his take. Um, we'll have to talk to Michael Waltrip in the next hour. Also, we're going to have Reince Priebus, chairman of the RNC, coming up after the break to talk to us about the Republican Party's new push to do something actually I have said for quite some time, and many others have as well. You and have. that is you should embrace technologies like Uber and Airbnb that are pushing the limits of government regulation. They're actually showing you the fight between innovation and government stagnation. And the RNC has jumped on it. They, they are might have been listening to you. They might have listened to you. All right, that's coming up when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. You know, so many of the things that we talk about, the philosophies we debate, that we champion, remain in, in, in abstractions. Oh, regulations are killing business. Oh, innovation is the driver behind economies. Well, when you, when you champion philosophical abstractions, it's very hard to gain an audience who pumps their fist. Yes, I'm for innovation. I mean, we are. It's really hard to rally yeah. a crowd around Prove it. that word. <laughs> right. Um, you have to find proxies. You have to find stories, illustrations, examples. This is probably, as we started out the show this morning, why so many in the media pick often ill-advised or ill-fitting stories to prop up an underlying cause or issue. Totems. Mm-hmm. Totems. Um, the Republican Party seems, in my estimation, to have found a wonderful totem, a wonderful symbol for what they stand for. It's something I've talked about in the past. I know that a lot of us have. And that is companies that are coming into uh, the economy, innovative, disruptive. And there's a real key word, disruptive companies. 
And what are they disrupting? Not just existing businesses, but existing cartels, infrastructures, regulatory environments that favor Unions. one group over another. <laughs> right. Unions. <laughs> Taxi and license commission. We're talking, of course, about Uber. Uber is the um, cell phone app developed just a few years ago that allows people to essentially find out when um, or where a car is available for, to pick them up, and often for cheaper, better, more comfortable rides than the yellow cab or local taxi wherever you live can do it. Do it you is, use Uber, Will? I don't. Not oh. very much. I, I know. I'm, I, I, I live for Uber. You want me to tell you why? Why? What is, I why? Why? iPhone yeah. 4 okay. with iOS 6 on it. What does that mean? It's gibberish. Old operating system. Uber doesn't work. <laughs> that's your. That's your fault. It is. You it's need to fault. get a new phone. I can't believe you're on here, champion innovation right now, I know. complaining that you don't have the technology to allow you to use an awesome <laughs> technology. That's crazy. Uber is a lifesaver. Um, it's just it's so much more efficient. It's so much more modern and 21st century than the current livery system that we've been operating under. For years. Yeah, it cost Century, a, for, uh, decades. It cost a million dollars, roughly a million dollars to get a taxi medallion in this city, in New York City, because it's regulated. It's a it's a government licensed and therefore cartel created environment of these are the only people you can use. You want to go around town in a car? Well, then you can only use these people. You and, will use these people and they will set the rules. That's right. They will set the prices. There is no negotiating and there is no competition. That's right. So your ability to have any influence over quality or cost, is completely restricted. You know, I left my bag in a cab once, a suitcase with an iPad, clothes, a couple of pairs of very nice shoes. <laughs> I called the police. I was told by the police, good luck. Nothing we can do. They'll take it back to TLC, Tax and Delivery Commission. They'll take it, the cab driver will take it back. It may end up in a lost and found. It may not. You're, you're done. You're SOL. Not so at Uber. Not so at Uber. Because every driver is tracked. Every ride is tracked. They use modern technology to do this. Go figure. You get your driver immediately. You rate your driver. Your driver rates you, which is also important. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's refreshingly modern. There's also UberX, which allows you simply to hop in a car yeah. uh, with someone else who's offered their services, essentially sharing their asset of their car. And that's not unlike another business, Airbnb, which allows you to share your home, your real estate, uh, rent out a room, rent out part of your house to someone who's visiting from out of town. Airbnb does not pay uh, hotel taxes in local economies. So both of these companies and others, like Uber and Airbnb, have received pushback from local politicians and unions and regulatory uh, commissions to push them out of business. In places like Dallas, Texas, there was an effort to get rid of Uber until, I don't know, thousands, at least hundreds of people showed up to city council meetings protesting that this was going to happen. So... Regulation came face-to-face with consumer demand, and consumer demand won, by the way. Uber ended up existing in those, in those uh, cities. Now, why am I talking about Uber once again? Why are we cheerleading this? Because the Republican National Committee has actually taken us up on this idea that Uber is the perfect symbol to champion. You don't have to just go out and talk about the abstractions of innovation 
or regulation. You can actually say, here's, here's a, an example. Here's a product that people love that are willing to fight for. And they, this product, is under threat from all of the things we've always talked about. And here's why we like it. Here's why you should like it. And here's why you should like us for liking it. Yep. It's, it's, it's positive, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great proxy. It's a great proxy for all of the things that Republicans and conservatives should stand for. Everything that is embodied... In our philosophy, our small government philosophy, our sort of um, self-reliant philosophy, um, right? it's all our innovation. It's all in there. It's a great idea. So the RNC put together a pro-free market anti-government uh, petition to show support for Uber. Now, what does a petition do? I don't know, but they've also put op-eds in. Uh, Ryan's previous chairman of the RNC wrote in the Chicago Tribune and Sean Spicer um, was on CNBC. He's the RNC communications director. Was on CNBC Squawk Alley last week. He said, "This isn't just about Uber. It's about Lyft, Airbnb, eBay, Amazon. It's about innovation. It's about saying that Washington and state capitals and government should get out of the way of innovation and job creation and let the market decide what goes on." Yeah. So we have we have Reince, uh chairman of the RNC, to to talk uh, us through the idea behind behind this attachment. Uh, Chairman Primus, thanks for joining us today. What was, what's the motivation here in attaching the RNC and by proxy the GOP and the conservative movement to innovative companies like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb? Well, look, I thought it we all thought it was a great way to illustrate what conservative values are all about in a way that made a lot of sense to people in a in a service industry that uh, a lot of us love to use and can relate to. So, I mean, I think it's really important that we not just talk about, you know, big government and the, and the, and the Bill of Rights, but we actually illustrate it in practice and what happens when government and a lot of cronyism gets involved in in government and then stifles a good competitor like Uber. And so we went with it and went with the... Um, with the petition, and also it helped that we were in Chicago, and Governor Quinn there is paying off huge taxi interests, and you know they give a lot of campaign cash around, and they want to stifle competition. So all of that together was the reason why we went with this national effort in illustrating what being a Republican and a conservative is all about. The Democrats um, are accusing you guys of pandering, wanting to get you know reach millennials with something that they find popular. I don't know that you can be shameless enough. Uh, when you find an oh, illustration of your values, when you find one, you got to run that flag all the way up the pole. Well, I don't know where you guys take this. What do you do with it from well, here? Well, first of all, I mean, when it comes to pandering, I mean, there's no, nothing worse kind of pandering than when a bunch of taxi unions stuff somebody's pockets full of money in Chicago and in Springfield, Illinois, in the governor's mansion, and then suddenly a bill shows up to stifle competition. That's pandering. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... That's pay-for-play pandering. Uh, that's a different world than saying, you know, here is an issue that highlights the what being a conservative is all about. Where do we take it from here? We, we're going to continue uh, on the push, especially in, you know, the midterms are, 
they're national races, but in reality, you know, they're won and lost at the local level. And so we're taking this two states that obviously this is playing into where it's a, it's a huge issue. And Illinois just happens to be one of them. And I know I'm beating that horse, but it is where we need to be playing this issue. And it's working well for us around the country. And, you know, we're having, uh, I think, a pretty big resurgence in our party among young people, number one. You know, they know that Obamacare was intentionally designed to screw them over. I mean, actuaries got together, and they figure out how to pay for something by screwing over young people. They know that there is an issue in regard to the NSA that they don't like. Yeah. They don't like Internet spying. That's a big this, issue for millennials. Yeah, That's right. And this issue with, with Uber is another issue. And so, you know, there is a libertarian streak out there that I know exists, and, and we're a better home. Uh, for people that that are more in the mindset of a libertarian viewpoint, and we have to grow our party. Well, and I think let me tell you why I think what 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 you did is brilliant. Um, because not only, as Will says, not only does it identify a perfect example of the kinds of philosophy and values that conservatives purport to believe, and and, and sort of um, harden hardens that example and and gives people something. Um, actual to look at. But for me, in terms of targeting millennials, which is so important and crucial, they are 80 million strong, 40% of the voting population by 2020. Um, Their heroes are not in Washington, D.C. They're in Silicon Valley. These are largely millennial technologies that millennials use. Millennials have big ideas like this that they want empowered. So it's not just I like Uber, the GOP likes Uber, therefore I like the GOP. It's, I've got technology ideas. I've got innovations that I want to see work out. And if this is the party that's going to empower that, then that's what I need to get behind. Well, I think that's exactly right. And and we have to take, I think, as Will said earlier, every opportunity we have to illustrate the difference between our party and their party. Um, the party of innovation versus the party of regulation, it goes to school choice. It goes to so many issues Absolutely. about liberty another great example. that we believe in um, <clears throat> that that we have to take an opportunity to build. And, and you're right. We put an office, actually, to that point. Mm-hmm. We One of the first things we did after the 2012 losses, we opened an office in San Mateo. We have yeah. an RNC. The only other place there's an RNC actual headquarters is in is in the Silicon Valley. Now, we have regional offices all over the place, but that's a, one of our main offices with about 20 software engineers out there. Hmm. That's good. I mean, that's hugely, that's hugely, hugely important. Um, Chairman, I wanted to ask you a couple other questions uh, okay. just just on, on um, GOP politics. If, if you, you could, could you stick around through the break? Sure. No I know problem. we took you late. Sorry. All right. We'll okay. come back right after this and talk to you about some other things. Thanks so much. This is Kane and Cup. On the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane along with SC Cup. We're happy. To still have RNC Chairman Reince Priebus on the phone with us. I know, Essie, you have a few questions for 
for the chairman. Uh, but I want to ask him real quick. Ryan, have, we're talking about the RNC championing Uber, but not just Uber, uh, Airbnb, Lyft, innovation in general, but symbolized by these companies. Have you heard from any of them? Have you heard from Uber? No, I have not heard from Uber. Um, <laughs> I've heard from people that that they're you know they're familiar with what we're doing, and I'm not sure whether they like it or they don't like it. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Listen, I'm sure they they don't mind it, and um, yeah, certainly you know the, the problem that Quinn has in Illinois is obviously there is no governor that's less popular than him. Bruce Rauner's up by 14 points. I mean, can you guys imagine that Illinois is going to, you know, we're probably going to flip a couple congressional races there. We're going to have a Republican governor. We got Mark Kirk. I mean, it is is going to be an amazing turnout. I grew up in Wisconsin when Illinois was Republican, and everything flipped, and you couldn't win a thing in Illinois, and now it's going back. And so this is just one more problem he's got, but like you guys have said, you've hit the nail on the head. This is an example of what our party ought to be doing much more than we are. And so hopefully this is a, a trend in the right direction of illustrating what it means to be a conservative and a Republican in this country. Yeah, well... First, go pack, go, no. and second. Yes, oh yes. yes. I, 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 tonight's a second preseason. I'm not a big fan of preseason, but anything Packers goes for. Oh, them. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, we've 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 talked about the the Packers extensively. Um, but you brought something up. You know, Democrats in red states are having a tough it's a tough slogan for them going yeah. into the, going into 2014, going into the midterms. But now we're hearing that even Democrats in blue and purple states are changing their calculus and running like conservatives. Um, how, how, do you, how do you villainize a group of people and then pick up their talking points? Well, obviously, you've got to show who they are. I mean, you've got to show them with their own words and their own promises when they said you can keep your doctor, uh, when you could keep your insurance. You've got to play that over and over and over again in those states. And you're right. I mean, these guys are running as, as Republicans. you got Michelle Nunn out there in Georgia yeah. uh, that's playing ads with her in Bush 41 and <laughs> the fact that she's against Obama. She's even, you know, she's making claims of, you know, being good buddies with Herman Cain. And suddenly all the that's amazing. Republicans are all around Michelle Nunn. I mean, they're not just going for you know, look at me and Bush 41. They're saying, look at me and Herman Cain. That's amazing. And this is what's happening across the country. And so I feel good about where we're at this year. But as you both know, we've got to be more than just a midterm party. We've got to figure out how to win a big cultural vote in this country. And and that's what we're trying to build every day. Have a good midterm. Be a big part of the success of the midterm. But but not just be a midterm party. Yeah, no, that's that's so important. And and to that to that point, I feel pretty good about the midterms as well. Looking ahead to 2016, you know, o- o- the, the foreign policy crises that Obama is overseeing abroad, barely overseeing uh, abroad, to me, have to have some effect on the national psyche. I mean, the incompetence of this administration through crisis after crisis, not just at home, at places like the IRS and the VA, but overseas, how do Republicans capitalize on that and say, look, you cannot elect another four years or eight years of Democrats in the White House. It just, in good conscience, you can't. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is unbelievable. And, 
you know, if you look at this president, and you, you're talking about foreign policy, and you had the domestic failures in there, um, it is, as we all know, we've all taken plenty of multiple-choice tests in our lives. And, you know, if you're taking a 100-question test, it's pretty hard to get every single question right. It's also equally difficult to get every single question wrong. And, and, and somehow this president has done it. And, and it's not just being rude or, you know, I'm the party chairman, so I'm going to say things like this. It is really true. And you, nobody wants a weak, Republic, a weak American president. Yeah. Nobody. It doesn't matter with Republican, Democrat, who wants a weak Republican, or they keep saying an American president overseas. Nobody. But that's what we have. An aloof, bizarrely, by the way, aloof president. And what's strange to me about all of this, and you think about what, where this president is at, you know, all of us, I think at some level, are kind of double-A personalities, right? We want to be successful. You work hard, SE and Will. You guys are working hard and, and have done remarkable things at a young age. You have a drive to, do, to be great. But somehow, Barack Obama, I don't, he doesn't seem to have that drive to be great and to do well. I mean, he's at Martha's Vineyard dancing. doesn't seem to care. You know, cameras, pictures, golf courses, yeah, it doesn't matter to him. It looks He's bad. bizarrely aloof as a person and as a president, and it's really weird. You know, I, I before we let you go, I just want to give you a chance to answer this question. We uh, played a clip of LZ Granderson, who is a, uh, he's a commentator on CNN, who in talking about uh, the shooting in Ferguson asked, where is Reince on this? Where are the libertarians and conservatives on the militarization of the police. I've pointed out conservatives and libertarians have been on this issue for years. Sorry if he's just discovered it. But I want to give you a chance to answer. Where is Reince on this? Well, look, I mean, clearly we've got a lot of building to do uh, as a country. And obviously, I think there's a lot of things that we have to start looking at. And, and, and I think Rand Paul uh, yeah. had said it very well the other day. And I've said the same sorts of things in the past. Um, it's, it's a tragedy, and it's something that obviously, yeah. uh, as a society, we're not done diving into and making sure that uh, hearts and minds and, and people yep. really open up their eyes and see what's happening. And, and I think, you know, it's a horrible yeah. tragedy, but it also comes we with gotta an run. opportunity. Sorry. No, Sorry. thanks. Listening to thanks, Chairman. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. Uh, we've been talking about the Tony Stewart incident from last Saturday for uh, a while on the show. We're real lucky to have Michael Waltrip join us, uh, driver, form, uh, driver, team owner. Michael Waltrip, I know we only have you for a couple minutes, buddy, so let me get right to it. I want you to break down what you think happened on Saturday on that dirt track. I just think Tony Stewart didn't see the, the young man on the track. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that race race those sprint cars and, and um, how difficult it is to see out of the right side of them. And um, I understand also that there's, you know, the caution is just falling. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have tear-offs uh, that help you uh, 
uh, view the racing surface with the, the dirt and mud flying through the air that you got to deal with. Uh, they're certainly getting getting in line with the other cars, and, and you know, I just it's, from what I've seen, um, there's there's uh, no my my heart tells me Tony just didn't see the young man, and uh, you know the the accident is obviously tragic, and the whole NASCAR community is is hurting um, over Kevin Ward Jr. and and also over what what Tony's dealing with. Yeah. So it's just a, a sad situation, but um, until Tony speaks and 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 tells exactly what 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 he saw or what happened. I think we'll all be we'll all have doubt or wonder what went on, mm. but in my mind, he just didn't see him. Well, and a lot of is being made of Tony's temper, his past sort of behavior. From what I know, you know Tony, and I, I've met him a few times. What you know of Tony, do you think there's any way that this could have been intentional on his part? No, no way, and, and I'm 100 percent confident and comfortable with that. Um, Tony and I raced together for 15 years, and we had a couple of run-ins on the track. Uh, we yelled at each other, um, but but he is a sweet person. He has a he has a wonderful heart. Um, I I know him probably better than than most, and I understand his competitiveness and how fiery he is, and how how much he wants to win, and how if you don't do properly on the track, he you know he wants to make sure you understand you, you made him mad. But he would never hurt anyone intentionally, and he would never he would never wreck anyone intentionally, unless you know unless someone wrecked him and he was just in a battle on the track. Michael, that's you, not who Tony is. Yeah, you began to describe it right there. Uh, you know, I guess for casual observers at least, that Tony has a reputation. As he mentioned it, it's of, of this temper or something. Is the reputation earned? Is it accurate? What is what if? If you were to describe Tony's reputation as a fellow driver, right, you're going to compete against this guy, see his car on the track next to yours. What is that reputation? Well, when I look at Tony on the track, the first thing I think is he's a fair racer. And he's a guy that's going to race you hard, but he's going to race you fair. And you have to respect who he is and what he's accomplished. And he, and, and, and let me just say also, I don't even think he knew he was in a wreck on Saturday night. I just think that in sprint car racing, you you do a little bit of bumping, your wheels touch. You know there was there was no reason for Tony to be mad at all because I don't think he knew what went on. Mm-hmm. And to to say that he did anything intentional, I don't I don't see how people come up with that because what what would he have been reacting to? He didn't he didn't wreck. He didn't know he was even in a wreck, in my opinion. And he just uh, was was riding along under caution and. Um, and in my, my heart, he just didn't see that that young man, Kevin Moore Jr., walk onto the track. Yeah, and do you think NASCAR, I know there's talk of NASCAR <clears throat> formalizing some rules, banning drivers from getting out of their cars uh, during a caution unless to save their own lives. Do you think Do you think that's the lesson we need to learn out of this story? Well, I, I believe it's a great step, and we're always reminded in the driver's meeting to, to remain in your car so the safety workers get there. But now NASCAR just said uh, we're going to we're going to police that. We're going to we're going to make sure that that you do just that. And if you think about it, SC, the, the 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 young young racers all across America, if they see their their heroes jump out of the car and throw a helmet or point a finger, what what are they going to do? You know, that's just that's just doing what what they've seen done before. And so if if that never happens again and and no one 
ever gets hurt again, then a, a lesson learned. But still, um, it's it's a very sad time for for NASCAR racing. The the feeling in the garage is still very somber. People are sad and hurting for the Ward family, and they're hurting for Tony. Do you think Tony comes back this season? Um, I I don't I don't know. I, I do know that um, Tony's a very sensitive, very caring person, and so I can only imagine uh, the grief that he's dealing with right now over being involved in this incident. And so, um, if he did it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but I, I don't I don't know how how he's doing. And I've just been told by his friends that that he just needs some time to 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 grieve through mm-hmm. the process of what all went down. Well, Michael, I, I'm going to let you go, and I just want to thank you for for taking the time to call in. I know the sport is dealing with a lot right now, and your firsthand knowledge of everything that's going on is really invaluable. And I just want to thank you for your honesty and 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 talking about this issue carefully, responsibly, with compassion, and with with all your expertise. So thanks for calling in. I appreciate the time, and uh, let's just say a prayer for for everybody involved, and uh, and thank you for having me. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Michael. I mean, that's that's uh, you know, that's a great firsthand look. Michael's been involved in wrecks. Michael's witnessed wrecks firsthand. Famously, uh, if you read his book, Blink of the in the Blink of an Eye, famously the wreck involving Dale Earnhardt. Michael knows Tony. Michael knows racing. So to have, I think, his first-person account, and Michael doesn't know what happened, and he's not purporting to, but to have his first-person account, I think, is really invaluable. Interesting question that both Michael and a previous caller brought up, whether or not Tony even knew he was in a wreck, because that would inform, again, and I I know that my instinct is always to think about this in terms of kind of legal analysis, um, but I actually think it's very instructive because it, it, it narrows you down onto what you can reasonably assume what your opinion should be, what foundation you have for your opinions, right? Yeah. Whichever way you fall on it. Um, and if Tony didn't know, yeah. if he didn't know he was in wreck, if is a big question there, but if he didn't know, then you would have a harder time making the argument that he lost his temper. Yeah. It's just really tough to look at that video and make the kinds of assumptions we all want to make. It's right. just tough. Right. We just don't know enough. All right, look, so I asked a question a little uh, while earlier. Where is an appropriate place to change your child's diaper? Number good. two, not good. one. Well, we've slept with them both up, one and two. Can you do it in a restaurant? Can you do it in a public park? We'll go through the scenarios because it's not just a theoretical. It's not just a hypothetical. No, this happened. It happened. <laughs> Caused some problems. Yeah. When we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cup. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. Um, where is an appropriate place to change your child's diaper? 888-900-3393. Give us a call. Let us know. A Texas mother in Spring, Texas, was having lunch, I think, at a pizza restaurant there. And she went into the bathroom and found there was no changing table. She complained about this to the store's workers. Apparently, they were... Rude in response, in her estimation. 
So she chose to change her child's poopy diaper. At the table. At in, the table. In the restaurant. At the table. Yeah, I, th- I don't know if it's at the table. Or do you know, where, do you know where Do you know where? I know is not appropriate to change a poopy diaper? At the table at a restaurant. <laughs> um, she was asked to leave. She was asked to leave. That's correct. And now is complaining about three things, it sounds like. One, that there were no changing tables in the bathroom. Two, that she was, in her estimation, treated rudely. And three, that she was then asked to leave when she changed the poopy diaper at the table of the restaurant. I got to say, I'm I'm on the side of the restaurant here. I am too. And the truth <laughs> is, this lady knows she did wrong. <laughs> It doesn't sound like it. I think so. Listen, when she makes comments <laughs> like this, she may not have fully rationalized it to herself, but she says that it had the store workers not ignored me when I was requesting another cup when ours oh. had a hole in it or been rude when I nicely complained that there was oh, no Oh, there no was change. a precipitating event. Yeah, so what I'm saying is she recognizes that the changing of the poopy diaper was an act of revenge. Uh-huh, okay, okay. <laughs> so the precipitating event was she had a, a hole in her cup. And they were rude about it. Yeah. So you know what I'm going to do? Change my kid's poopy diaper I'm gonna at the aerate, table. <laughs> I'm going to aerate this place. <laughs> yeah, so I think she's not under kind of any wrong social uh, conception of social mores. <laughs> I don't think she thinks, hey, I can do this. Um, well, I've not changed a poopy diaper. You have. Is it ever okay to change a poopy diaper in a restaurant? I, I think not. And I think you and I have discussed this. Yeah. Your standard is the answer to this question. Is there food served? Yes. Then you should not be changing a poopy Correct. diaper. Correct. I mean, I don't know, but as just a, a human being, I would suggest that the, the limitation on where you can change a poopy diaper is, unless, I mean, let's do it, like severe health emergency, um, is there food being served nearby? <laughs> that should be, look, if you're out at the park, right, and you've got big space and you're sort of at your own little thing. I don't care if you change a poopy diaper in the grass on your blanket. Public park, fine. Totally fine. How about airplane? Like like in your seat? That's right. No, go to the bathroom. What's to prevent you from going to the bathroom? Well, you will learn. There Tell will me. be long line. Um Oh, okay. And so the emergency is I do it right over now. spillage. Diaper didn't hold. Gross. <laughs> your, Gross. Your life in a number of months. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, look, that's unfortunate. That would be unfortunate. That would be really, um, uncomfortable. And I'm sure you face these emergencies. Let me Mm -hmm. ask you this. My friend was telling me last night, she has two kids, one on the way. She was at a friend's house and the friend has a son, her son's age. They're both two. And the friends, the son's. The the, 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 the the father, the, the father of the other kid, asked her to change her kid's diapers. Does yeah, that that's, happen? Yeah, but that, no, that's not right. That's not right, right? I mean, is there some reason that you can't do it? Are you... Uh, she you goes, I'm going to go change Paolo's diapers. I'm going to go change Paolo's diapers. And he goes, oh, can you change his too? Oh, no, no, no. Uh-uh. Am I going to be expected to change other children's diapers as well? It could happen. It's not a reasonable request. That's crazy, right? Let me ask Nona in California. Aren't we all just responsible for our own in this yes, game? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, so at least your first priority. <laughs> okay. Let me ask Nona in California. Where's the line, Nona? Well, you need to treat your kids with dignity. You. Uh, it's about your you, kid. It's not about the other people, huh? Exactly right. <laughs> it is because you wouldn't want your rear end exposed in public. 
but it, it goes it's more than that though I, too if you if you think uh, about the the lady she just wasn't thinking when she did that I, I i give her the benefit of the doubt she wasn't thinking because at her own house at dinner time she would not have put the baby on the table and changed the diaper let's hope not if she would ever do it on the table you, you there's just appropriate places to do it. If it was a wet diaper, you might be able to sneak it uh, if, on the seat, you know, in a booth, but you wouldn't want other people to see it. I, But I disagree with your dignity analysis, Nona. Um, first of all, children have no dignity, um, <laughs> and it's it, it's exhibited by their own behavior, not behavior they force on them. They don't care if they're wearing clothes around. So you would not do this. Let's say you're in a swimming pool, Nona, and um, you're going to change your kid uh, from his swimsuit to to dry clothes, um, you think you must go to the locker room to change that two-year-old's outfit? I would. I would. Yeah. Because, no, of, no. Di- because of dignity for it, the child? It is part of dignity. When will they learn dignity? Right. Right. Well, no, no, am I right? You've called him before. You have a bunch of kids, yeah? Yes, I have 10 children. Yes, right. I remember. I remember. So, Will, Nona's got you beat by eight. Well, I, I mean, it's about quality, not quantity. Oh. <laughs> I had a 15-year-old and 11-year-old go to college. Well, I mean, I can't speak for yours. I'm just saying mine are rock stars. Okay. You know what? They are. I agree with you, Will. Who would know better than their parents? Right. Yes, yes. That's right. I Trust like me, it. I'm Actually, here to tell you. Right. I, think, I think that's a nice way of thinking about it. I mean, to me, it's about being sanitary and, like, health conscious, but it's also, look, my kid doesn't want to be naked in front of strangers while they're eating hmm. any more than strangers want my kid naked in front of them while they're eating. Nona, Nona as an expert of 10 children, parent of 10 children, what about the airplane scenario I just told you? Uh, you know, in the aisle, in the, in, not in the aisle, in the, uh, in the row. Right. Assuming you have the whole row, by the way. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, unfortunately, I couldn't hear you when when you were doing that. Um, uh, so I'm not sure, but I would I would take the child to the lavatory. But, but what if there's a long line? That's what I said. And then maybe you know you know how this works. Nona, you've had ten. There's all kinds of th- what. What if it's overspilling? Yes. I, oh, yes. I know. Oh. <laughs> there are some things that emergency dictates. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, but you have a rule of thumb and that, it, you know, dignity first, but emergency, you know, you're not going to... Overrides. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, right. Nona. All right, Nona. Thank you for the call. This is all good. Well, listen, this is my promise to you. This is my promise to you. When these scenarios present themselves, I will, I will discuss them and I will, I will be open and upfront and honest about how these scenarios play out. You should because they don't come with clear answers. Yeah. Right? You're winging some of this. Sometimes they do. This, you, this woman, clearly, no. I no brain bro- I've broken the dignity rule numerous times. Yeah, you've told me. I've heard. I've heard about it. I've heard about it. <laughs> but they were emergencies. Sure. Sure. Okay. I'm talking about for my children, not for yes. myself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Will is potty trained. <laughs> All right. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning. It's been another fun morning with you on Canyon Cup. We'll be back next week, next Saturday morning, 9 a.m. to noon. Look forward to talking to you then. Listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.